Hello and welcome to this month's edition of the Worcester Talking Magazine, recorded at Colin Chan's house. I'm Jenny and with me reading are... Sue, Caro and Patrick. Our engineer is Duncan and working on administration is Carol. Our copying team are Sylvia and David. Our opening and closing music is High Society March by the Canadian Brass Band. Well, February, here's a quote from Dr. J.R. Stockton. February is merely as long as it's needed to pass the time until March. Winter is the time for comfort, for good food and warmth, for the touch of a friendly hand and for a talk beside the fire. It's a time for home. And it's also a month of love. If apples were pears and peaches were plums and the rose had a different name, if tigers were bears and fingers were thumbs, I'd love you just the same. (laughs) I hope this month's magazine will be fun and interesting. I thought you'd like to know a bit about the talents of our team of readers. You hear them every month, but... uh, They're going to just um, tell you how talented they are. So on that note, I should pass you over to Sue for the first article. Well, the first article is called All Change. The charity shop is undergoing a redesign and Rosemary is not amused. And Rosemary has written the article. Everything's all higgledy-piggledy. Where have you put the china? It's on the shelf. Look, next to the bright purple pashmina. I was looking at your display of ties last week. Where have they gone? Over there on the left, just before the bookcase. Welcome to my world this week. It's been like the closing moments of the generation game, with the slight difference that the customers come into the charity shop and complain that they can't find anything. Picture frame, cruet set, copy of Biggles of the Camel Squadron, blue spotted tie, Copy of Who's Who 1991, clocking the shape of a black Labrador wagging its tail, hat boxes, and of course, the cuddly toys. As you'll have gathered by now, because readers of We Woman's Weekly are fed on a regular diet of oily fish that keeps their brains in tip top condition, we've had a bit of a move around at the shop. Mrs. Beasley, our manager and occasional feature of this page, seems to believe that she's running a very large branch of a well-known supermarket chain. So when she did her shopping recently and discovered that the well-known supermarket in question had been redesigned, I'm very much afraid that she had an idea. If you ask me, having ideas is overrated. Picture the scene, and it shouldn't be too difficult because the scene in question is all too familiar. You're doing a bit of light shopping. You're in a tearing hurry because George Clooney's knees are being interviewed later later that morning on Loose Women. You head for the aisle where frozen peas have been displayed since the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. But do you find frozen peas? No, you find biscuits. So you make a dash for the old biscuit aisle in the hope of finding frozen peas. But you don't find frozen peas, you find detergent. The supermarkets do this because they believe it will improve their sales. They believe that we will wander through the store in search of frozen peas and that on the way we'll pass a display that we have never noticed before. Goodness me, decaffeinated tea bags will cry. 
I've never noticed those before. What will they think of next? Before I continue my search for, for frozen peas, I simply must put some of these extraordinary items into my trolley. Continuing our journey to the frozen peas aisle, the supermarket people hope we'll also pick up Angel Delight. Some of those thin round batteries that don't seem to fit anything we have in the house. Oyster sauce, pomegranate and elderflower cordial. No, oh, you get the idea then. If there, if there are any supermarket designers reading this, here's a handy tip. It doesn't work like this. What actually happens is we dash to the frozen peas aisle. Number two, there are no frozen peas. Number three, we race around the store in a frantic search for frozen peas. Number four, as we're doing this, we're cursing supermarket designers. Number five, as we're cursing supermarket designers, we swear that we will never set foot in this particular supermarket again. Number six. Of course, this is an empty threat. If we start shopping at a rival supermarket, it means four extra roundabouts on the bypass and usually a 20-minute queue to get out of the car park. Number seven. But don't think we'll forget about this. Number eight. Well, we might forget about it if you wave a few extra loyalty points in our direction and throw in a free packet of peas. We're saved, I suppose, by the fact that our shop is quite small. Once you get through the front door, you can virtually see all of it. Secondhand frozen peas on the left there, just beyond the display of tree mugs. But I wonder what Mrs B will think of next. I've noticed recently that more and more shops are asking me to rate their service. Only yesterday, an assistant at M&S asked me to complete an online survey. I can only hope that Mrs B hasn't been to M&S recently. <laughs> Thank you for shopping at Beasley World, the charity shop that cares. Did you find our assistants A, helpful, <laughs> B, Friendly, see, in the storeroom having a cup of tea and a gossip. While visiting Beasley World, did you notice our special offer on sha shapeless men's jackets? If there is a shapeless man in your life, we're offering 50% off. That's 50% off the jacket, of course. Unfortunately, we can't do anything about the shapeless man. It might, once again, be time to gently remind Mrs B that she is not running John Lewis. Life in a small charity shop is very simple. We try to make the shop as attractive as possible with a jolly window display to lure people in. Inside, we try to ensure that everything is displayed to show it off properly. Our staff try to be friendly and approachable. If something isn't quite right for a customer, we pride ourselves on finding something that is. Oh yes, sir, I think we can certainly find a jacket that's a little more shapeless than, <laughs> than that one. We could ask customers to rate our service. We could keep expensive chocolate treats next to the till. We could ask if customers have a Beasley World loyalty card. And if not, whether they would like a Beasley World loyalty card. 
We could hand them little bits of paper containing offers which they will almost certainly discover in their handbag several weeks after the offers have lapsed. We could do all those things, but we think it would annoy our customers and we like to leave that to the professionals. Celia Walden writes on the joy of leaning in to embrace anger. It all started with a skinny latte, except this latte wasn't skinny or hot. And I don't know whether it was the hormones or the steady drizzle of another averagely vile London day and the fact that that dribble had ruined both my shoes and my hair or the combination of 40 years of unexpressed anger. But it occurred to me that this latte was a turning point. I could drink the latte and get slightly more annoyed with every sip before, in a way that only women can, allowing that annoyance to seep into every area of my life, prompting a fatalistic inner howl at the film noir that was my first world experience. Or I could do something I had never done before. Complain. <laughs> Excuse me, I said, impossibly loaded. It came out as a bark. This is cold. Also, I asked for skim milk. The waitress was going to hate me. I was fairly sure that I hated me. Just suck it up and be grateful the way you have always done. Never mind that it's four quid that you'll never get back, that the 50 calorie difference could have been more enjoyably spent on an apple, 12 strawberries, six dill pickles, and two tablespoons of hummus. And like every other annoyance you've been too cowardly to express over the years, this one will calcify in your stomach acting as a permanent reminder of your failure to lean in. I mean, geez, if I leaned back any further, I'd fall off my chair. I'm the girl that's so bad at confrontation that I once teared up while telling off an employee. I mm. routinely give white van men that stupid mere culpa of a hand gesture when they cut me up. And in 10 years of cohabitation, I have never once raised my voice at my husband. But while this inner monologue was going on, the smiling waitress had brought me back a piping hot and reassuredly watery-looking latte. I'm so sorry about that, she said. We won't charge you for it at all. It was a revelation. When I got home, I embarked on a one Amazon-clicking frenzy. How to get angry without feeling guilty. Sob calm and get angry. Letters of a dissatisfied woman. The art of complaining. And learning how to be the perfect bitch, and especially for my husband, how to live with a bitch. <laughs> Any toys not tidied away in a half an hour, I shouted, are going to fara, I told the little infant. Then, turning on my husband, I'm going to need you to stop throwing the pillows on the floor, switching on your phone in the middle of the night and flooding the room with light, and stop using my Kerate shampoo. And also, coasters, use them. Fine, he rejoined, in which case I'm going to need you to stop using my toothbrush to clean your jewellery, stop buying boxes that are too small to put anything in, and incinerate the throw pillows. The whole exchange had filled me with a startling but immense feeling of well-being. Is this what's known as an argument? I asked him, hopefully. <laughs> no, he said. Let's get to those. <laughs> Excuse me. So almost following on from anger, we've all heard the expression laughter is the best medicine and uh, uh, I've been recently uh, doing some research on this and there's a lot of wisdom in that phrase 
1980, Dr. Norman Cousins wrote a book called The Anatomy of an Illness. And he'd been diagnosed with heart disease and uh, the prognosis wasn't great. He moved, he was a wealthy man seemingly, and he moved out of the hospital into a, a hotel room that he set up and he recovered, he says, mainly by taking vitamin C and watching episodes, continuous episodes of Marx Brothers movies. Um, it's not a, exactly a scientific research, but uh, there has been a lot more done. Dr. Lee Burke, Associate Professor at Loma Linda University School of Medicine, has been studying the therapeutic effects of laughter. In response to stress, this is his uh, opinion, frustration or anger, your body produces cortisol. Elevated cortisol suppresses your immune system, making you more susceptible to disease. Dr. Burke has shown that laughter lowers cholesterol levels, thereby mitigating the negative effect of stress. Laughing can help control pain, lower blood pressure, stretches your diaphragm, opens up your lungs, eases chest tension and relieves stress. Laughing increases B cells, a disease-fighting protein, which boosts your cellular immune response. I hope you're getting interested in this laughter thing. Dr. Michael Miller, researcher at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, found that laughing dilates blood vessels, increasing blood flow and helping to keep the heart healthy. His team found that subjects experienced a 22% increase in blood flow after watching a funny movie. Japanese geneticist Kuno Mariaki has been studying the health effects of a good laugh. His theory is that laughing triggers energy inside a person's DNA, which then helps cure disease. In one experiment, he had diabetics listen to a dull lecture and then watch a comedy show. Their blood glucose level was lowered following the comedy show. He also conducted a program where participants received a medical checkup and exercises while watching a comedy show. They reported their annual health care costs decreased 30% after they joined the program. Alan Klein, author of The Healing Power of Humour, claims 20 seconds of laughing gives the heart the same workout as three minutes of hard rowing. And he suggests rather than reaching for a drink or a pill, check out a funny movie. And uh, just as my PS here, BBC Radio 4, most days at 6.30pm, uh, air uh, comedy programs, and they're always brilliant. They can, ranging from just a minute, which has been running, I think, for almost my lifetime, to up to the latest comedy shows. And uh, laughter is something that always uh, interested me in a very, very big way, because when I was a young man, <clears throat> I had an uncle, and the story, the family story goes that uh, he worked, he was a compositor. I don't know if any of you are of the age to know what a compositor was, no longer existent. This is a skilled person who works in the, uh, in the printing uh, industry. And it's uh, the compositor's job um, to use their talents to get each individual letter, place it in its correct uh, opposite way, leave the spaces, spelling correct, and so on. So that eventually when it's printed on paper and it's reversed out uh, in the print, it reads uh, intelligibly. Uh, one day, seemingly, this uncle of mine had a birthday a celebration at lunchtime, had a long uh, liquid lunch, came back and started uh, his work uh, as a compositor on a children's fairy tale book that the publishers were, were about to embark on. And uh, because he was a trusted uh, and talented man, it, it went through, and uh, the result was a complete disaster. And uh, the opening line started with, A tongue I'm alone. 
which should have been a, a long time ago. <clears throat> a Tongai Malo in a Lauren Fand, there lived a Prince of Abutris. And as the host happened, there also lived a woogly old itch. Now, she didn't like the Prince of Abutris because the Prince of Abutris was just as pud as she was gritty. So the woogly old itch sassed a devil pell on her and made the Prince of Abutris slow to keep. The woogly old itch ran around reeking with laughter, telling everybody that Bonadi would loll and fuck with Benny Zadi, who was the leap all the time. And so the Prince of Abutris became known as the Beeping Slooty. <laughs> One day, a moshing machine salesman copped at the sassel. And when Bonadi answered his dock on the door, he walked in the lindo. And there he saw the Beeping Slooty. Now he didn't care whether she was a neep or slot. Because when he saw her where she was, he groped the blast and blimed into the kedron. Then the Marshallian scene salesman knelt on his fees, and he hooked her by the tan, and he canted the pliss on the nymph of her toes, and the beeping slooty oak up. Oh, giant muddness, she said. I'll bet my mare is a hess. And the Marshallian scene salesman said, Hey, I'm not really a Marshallian scene salesman. I am a hung and transom yince. But that woogly old age cut a purse on me and canished me from my kingdom until I could kiss a beeping slooty. You have spoken the bell. Will you marry me? And the beeping slooty said, You have spoken my bell also. Yes, I will marry you because we have so much in common. And Mulder was married. And one of the first things they did was to get the woogly old ditch and pass her into prison so that she didn't coo any more dicked weeds. <laughs> and the moral of the story is that if you ever loll under a feeble L, and you want to end up tritting on the throne. Never ever chass up the pants to kiss a beeping slooty. <laughs> right, and now for the quiz. This is a little more serious, and it's um, quite difficult, I understand, but I know that you'll be able to uh, fathom it through. I shall give you plenty of notice at the end for the answers, so uh, you can switch off and, and do them at your leisure. Question one. What item of clothing was named after its Scottish inventor? Item two. Who invented the rabies vaccination? Number three. Where would you find the Sea of Tranquility? Number four. Name the world's biggest island. Number five. What's the world's longest river? Number six, which four British cities have underground rail systems? Number seven, what's the diameter of the earth? And this is a clue, 4,000 miles, 6,000 miles, or 8,000 miles. Number eight, which actress has won the most Oscars? Number nine, name the actress whose career began at the age of three and who went on to star in films such as Contact, Maverick, and The Silence of the Lambs. Number 10. In which film did Humphrey, Humphrey Bogart say, We'll always have Paris? Number 11. By what name is Lancelot Brown more usually known? 
Number 12. Which popular gardener created Barnsdale Gardens and was the author of many books such as The Ornamental Kitchen Garden, Gardener's World Practical Gardening Course, and Paradise Gardens? Number 13. Which kind of bulbs were once exchanged as a form of currency? Number 14. How many times was the men's tennis singles at Wimbledon won by Bjorn Borg? Number 15. Who was the famous ballet Russian dancer who changed the face of modern ballet? Number 16. Name the Spanish artist, sculptor, and draftsman famous for co founding the Cubist movement. What did the Eurostar train service between Britain and France, sorry, when did the Eurostar train service between Britain and France start running? When was the euro introduced as legal currency on the world's market? Name the author of On Her Majesty's Secret Service, Dr. No and Thunderball, among others. Which Shakespeare play features Shylock? Which BBC music programme was broadcast weekly between 1964 and 2006? And last one, what is sushi traditionally wrapped in? Now, I'll give you plenty of notice for the,、uh, for the answers at the end. They were very hard, yes. Now, on to Sue. Okay, well, I didn't get many of those, I know. So, <laughs> as Jenny said,、um, she's asked us to tell you a little bit about ourselves and what we do. So, I'm Sue and I'm semi retired now, but I'm still working、um, part time as a registrar for Worcestershire, which means if you、um, have seen the series on TV, then I hatch, match, and dispatch. <laughs>、um, When I work in the office, which I do on a casual basis, we register births and deaths and also take notices when couples want to get married. Births are obviously usually a very happy occasion, and the bonus is we usually get to see the babies. And I even manage to register my own grandson's birth, which means his nanny's name is also on his birth certificate. And there's not many can say that, I guess. What is lovely is when a couple come in、um, to register their baby's birth and I've previously married them. So it's great to see them again and to see them so happy and, and how they're moving on through their life. People often ask me how I cope with registering deaths, but actually, that's the part of the office job which I find the most rewarding because it's abs- an absolute privilege to be able to help people at the most difficult time in their lives. When they come in, some laugh, some cry, some are in shock, and others just want to talk about their loved ones. But they are always really grateful when we can help ease the process for them. The best bit about the job, though, is conducting civil wedding ceremonies. We get to see all the wonderful venues in Worcestershire, and we meet all sorts of people from all walks of life and all shapes and sizes. What I didn't realise before I took the job was that people get married on any day of the week, even holiday times, including Christmas. So it's not just Saturday anymore. 
There's always two of us at every ceremony. One conducts and the other registers, which means they have to do all the writing and make sure all the legal processes are followed. Every ceremony we do is different. I've married Superman and Superwoman, Star Wars characters, but as yet I've not been asked to dress up as one of them myself, but I would if I was asked to. Um, we've had a page boy drop the wedding rings on the way up the aisle in front of the bride and we were all on our hands and knees looking for them. Um, the guide dog, however, at another wedding did much better. He was very well behaved and he delivered the rings on cue. One poor bride had to get married in a dress she'd hurriedly found in her wardrobe as the bridal shop was closed when she went there in the morning to collect her wedding gown. And the moral of that is don't leave it till the Saturday you get married. The best story, though, that I've heard it was from a colleague who said he managed to splatter the bride's dress with registrar's ink. And registrar's ink is permanent and never fades. And apparently the bride managed to laugh at it. But um, I was so glad it wasn't me that did that. So we do have to be on the ball and ready to react to whatever comes our way on the day as you're managing events that might have four people there, up to 250 people. But I wouldn't change it for the world. It's great to be a small part in people's lives at these very special times and I'm so glad I took the job and I only wished I had the opportunity 30 years ago. So you've heard from Sue, now it's my turn. My name is Caro, and in case any of you are uh, wondering about my accent, um, I was born in London, but I grew up in South Africa and returned to the UK 24 years ago, um, and somehow I've managed not to lose my South African twang. I am married, I'm married to a Brummie, and I have two grown-up daughters, one of whom is getting married early next year in Melbourne, so I have the lovely task of going wedding dress shopping pretty soon. I also have three little fur babies who get walked every day, and that's something that I really love doing. In terms of work, uh, my husband and myself started a business 10 years ago. It's a food catering business, and it's called Feast. We own and operate a fleet of 25 sandwich vans, and we're based just outside of Joitwich Spa. Um, our vans cover a huge geography across the Midlands. Uh, we have a van in Gloucester, we've got one in Tewkesbury, uh, one in Evesham, several in Worcester, several in Droitwich, Starport, Kidderminster, three in the Redditch area, Bromsgrove, Dudley, several in Birmingham, and uh, one in Telford and two in Coventry. So we have a huge geographical footprint. So, as you can imagine, that means that we employ a lot of staff. Uh, we have a team of uh, 27 sandwich van drivers. We have a team manager. We have two admin managers, two kitchen managers, five kitchen assistants, and one cleaner, all of whom are full-time. So that's a staff quota of 35. Sorry, 38. So a typical day in our business unfolds something like this. The kitchen opens at 5 a.m., all of our cold food, all of our sandwiches and our wraps and our baguettes and our, sandwich and our salads are manufactured overnight in Birmingham by a sandwich manufacturer who makes the delivery at 5.30 every morning with all of the kits kitted up by the different rounds. So we have 25 um, kits of sandwiches and baguettes and rolls and salads uh, delivered at half past five in the morning. We have 
at the depot to massive multi-deck ovens which are programmed to come on at about half past four in the morning and preheat uh, ready for us to start baking at 5.30. So we bake all of our hot food uh, off fresh in the morning. So every day we bake 800 sausage rolls, 600 Cornish pasties and 700 other pies and pasties each morning and we fry off 600 southern fried chicken breasts and that's just the hot food we also as i've said offer cold food salads baguettes rolls and uh, baked cakes and cool drinks crisps and confectionery so all of the vans are ready to leave the depot and get onto their different patches at about 8 30 in the morning each van has approximately 50 to 55 different businesses that it calls on at the same time every day and each van serves roughly about 250 customers per day. Every single one of the van has a little iPad which holds our till operating system so we know exactly how many customers we serve each day and exactly what every customer buys. And last week's count was uh, 19,793 customers. The, dep the vans get back to the depot at about two and by three o'clock we're all ready to go home. So my husband and I feel that we have a great team of staff working for us. We are proud most of the time <laughs> of our business achievements and what we've built together. And as our strapline says, and it's written all over our vans, why bring your lunch to work when you can have a feast? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Carol. Um, uh, my name is Patrick, and... Um, I, like uh, Carol, have an accent. It isn't the same one, uh, to differentiate that. But I was, really, I was born in Dublin and uh, have uh, lived in the UK since 1960. Um, I'm retired and uh, I've been associated with the Guide Dogs for the Blind uh, with my wife uh, for the last uh, few years. Uh, under the uh, role or title of uh, puppy walkers, which is a little bit of a misnomer in itself because it, it suggests that we walk puppies, but really uh, we do the uh, first uh, 12, 14 months training for these uh, marvellous uh, um, animals that are going to be of such a great joy and help to, uh, to people later on. Um, so what I thought I would do here is, is give you a, a, a brief history of, of guide dogs in Britain. And um, it's something that I wasn't aware of before I became involved in, in, in the guide dog organization. And uh, I hope this is news for a lot of you. Um, and as all of you know, it started off in Germany. Oh, you didn't know that? Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, it started off in Germany, which is my first surprise. Uh, what happened was, after, uh, during and directly after the First World War, there were a lot of uh, uh, servicemen, uh, both, both Allies and, and Germans um, from Britain and Germany, who had been uh, blinded by what they called blast bombs. I'm not sure what they did, but that, that was what the, the description of them was. And they left people... Uh, who were other, otherwise healthy and their limbs were all in place and they were mobile and their brains were working but they lost their eyesight um, as a result of these blast bombs. And uh, it was towards the end of the First World War that a German doctor looking after uh, war wounded was called away from a blind man with whom he was walking in the grounds of the hospital. 
The doctor left his German Shepherd dog with the man and was subsequently so impressed by the dog's behaviour that he decided to start experiments in training dogs to act as guides for the blind. This is the first idea that they could be uh, done on a, on a large scale. Uh, by 1923, a guide dog training centre had been established at Potsdam, which trained several thousand dogs in the next 10 years. And this work came to the attention of a wealthy American, Mrs. Dorothy Eustace, who was breeding and training German Shepherds in Switzerland for the Customs Service, the Army and the Police. After visiting the Potsdam Centre, Mrs. Eustace was impressed and wrote an article for the American Saturday Evening Post of 1927. A few days after the magazine appeared, a young blind American, Morris Frank, was told about the article. He bought the article and was told about the, uh, its contents, and he later said that the money it cost me, he said, bought an article that was worth more than a million dollars to me. It changed my whole life. He was so excited by the article that he decided to approach Mrs. Eustace in Switzerland. He wrote to her, I want one of those dogs. Thousands of blind people like me abhor being dependent on others. Help me and I will help them. His enthusiasm infected Mrs. Eustace. She immediately arranged for Elliot Humphrey, who was in charge of her kennels, to study the work in Germany and then return to train a dog in Switzerland. As soon as this was done, Morris Frank was sent for and a few weeks later, with his new dog Buddy at his side, Frank became America's first guide dog owner. As a result of this experience, Mrs. Eustace set up a guide dog centre in Switzerland and later established the first school for training dogs in the United States. In the ensuing years, she devoted herself and much of her wealth to the development of the guide dog movement. She travelled widely, lecturing about her work, and soon, in 1930, articles about it began to appear in the British press. Amongst those who became interested in the possibility of setting up a guide dog organisation in Britain was Miss Muriel Crook, an enthusiastic German shepherd breeder, and, uh, and a friend of hers, Mrs. Rosamund Bond, a breeder and exhibitor of German shepherds. They decided to write to Mrs. Eustace, and after an exchange of correspondence, the three women met in London on the 23rd of September 1930. Mrs. Eustace said she would lend a trainer to run a trial scheme in Britain. The latter part of 1930 and the first half of 1931 were now devoted to setting up the nucleus of an organisation and finding a suitable training spot. In February 1939, Miss Crook and Mrs. Bond, together with two new supporters, Captain Alan Sington and Lady Kitty Risco, went to London for a meeting with the National Institute for the Blind. Here they discovered to their dismay that, strictly speaking, they had been acting illegally in raising £284 for the training scheme. They weren't registered. It was decided to conduct the trial scheme near Mrs. Crook's home in Wallasey, near Liverpool, and a piece of land and a garage in Cardington Road, New Brighton, was rented as a dog room and store. That's how it started, a dog room and store. The trainer lent by Mrs. Eustace, his name was William Debitas, arrived in England on the 1st of July, accompanied by Elliot Humphrey, who selected seven of 28 German shepherds that had been acquired from various sources. A gentleman called Captain Nikolai Leohov, who was a former officer of the Russian Imperial Guard, 
who, after escaping Russia, had been forced to earn a living as a taxi driver and waiter in Paris, and whatever casual work he could find, heard about this guide dog work at Potsdam and was so struck by what he saw that he went to work with Mrs. Eustace in Switzerland. Faced with the choice of going to America or Britain to continue working with guide dogs, he chose the latter because, according to someone who knew him well, it was a monarchy. He arrived in England on October 1933 and was to serve the association as trainer, director of training and finally as consultant until his death in 1962. Captain Leahoff went on to say, The more difficult part comes when the blind owner has to be trained with the dog at completion of the dog's own training. Pairing the people and the dogs is a matter which calls on the trainer's skill in both canine and human psychology. There is more to it than giving a big dog to a large man and a smaller one to a little woman. Temperaments have to be blended as well. The man and the dog at the end of their month's training together are beginning to form one unit rather than two separate entities and it is at this stage that they are ready to go to the person's home. This stage is followed by the most critical one of all, when the guide dog owner is at last on his own. But the association never loses touch with the guide dog owners, and this aftercare is an essential part of its work. At first it was necessary on a very limited scale, Sorry, at first it was necessarily on a very limited scale, but by 1962, regular visits were being made to guide dog owners throughout the country. Special attention is always paid to any owner with problems and guide dogs that are nearing retirement age. The visitor may interview an owner's employer if there are any problems accommodating the dog at work, or he may advise a dog owner of the need for a refresher training course. Some idea of the scale of aftercare work can be envisaged from the fact that there are now over 5,000 guide dog owners in Britain. Replacing the dogs when they reach the end of their working lives is always given priority and accounts for about half the output of the district teams. The association can also provide other help to guide dog owners present, past and potential, for example long cane training, daily living skills and advice and vital ophthalmic and veterinary studies aim to improve the quality of life for vision-impaired people and their dogs, and Guide Dogs is committed to educating the public about caring for their eyes. The ownership of a guide dog brings freedom and independence, often to an extraordinary degree. This is borne out by the remarkable diversity of employment of guide dog owners. Sometimes the work may even mean special training for a dog since it will have to become accustomed to an unusual environment. Gone are the days when the only work for the blind person was associated with such activities as basket making. Guide dog owners can be found in almost any activity, in factories and workshops, offices and professions as farmers and salesmen and sandwich and baguette makers. There are computer programmers, civil servants, clergymen, lecturers, teachers, solicitors, writers, broadcasters, psychotherapists, doctors, stockbrokers, librarians, museum officials, social welfare workers, typists and telephonists, fitters, storemen and engineers. 
And I didn't see on this list uh, high-profile um, politicians, but of course David Blunkett uh, famously had a lovely uh, black Labrador at work with him. Looking back, the Guide Dogs for the Blind Association can be seen as a monument to the efforts of countless willing hands. It is almost invidious to mention names, although key figures stand out. Muriel Crook, Lady Schuster, Captain Learhoff, Lady Frieda Valentine. But the name for which every guide dog owner must be thankful above all is unquestionably that of the American Mrs. Dorothy Eustace, whose vision, energy and generosity inspired so many others in Britain and elsewhere to follow in her footsteps. Well, um, I'm Jenny and I'm married to Patrick and I'm retired and uh, he does everything so I could really bore you with details of how to vacuum and load dishwashers, but I'm not going to do that. Instead, we'll go on to, did you know? And it takes up to 75,000 crocus flowers to make a pound of saffron, which is enough to fill an entire football pitch. There are more life forms living on your skin than there are people on the planet. A single cloud can weigh more than one million pounds. The average person spends six months of their lifetime waiting on a red light to turn green. <laughs> the average person walks the equivalent of three times around the world in a lifetime. Men are six times more likely to be struck by lightning than women. Coke. <coughs> Sorry. Coca-Cola would be green if colouring wasn't added to it. New York drifts about one inch farther away from London each year. A sneeze travels about a hundred miles an hour. Earth has travelled more than 5,000 miles in the past five minutes. A mole can dig a tunnel that is 300 feet long in only one night. Chewing gum while you cut an onion will help you keep uh, will, will help you keep from crying. Al Capone's business card said that he was a used furniture dealer. <laughs> it's physically impossible for pigs to look, look up into the sky. Drying fruit depletes it of thirty to eighty percent of its vitamin and antioxidant content. Blueberries will not ripen until they are picked. About 150 people a year are killed by coconuts. <laughs> Avocados are poisonous to birds. Coconut water can be used as blood plasma. The toothpaste Colgate is Spanish, in Spanish translation says, go hang yourself. <laughs> Human thigh bones are stronger than concrete. Cockroaches can live for several weeks with their heads cut off because their brains are located inside their body. They would eventually die from being unable to eat. To produce a single pound of honey, a single bee would have to visit two million flowers. Mm -hmm. A jiffy is the scientific name for one hundredth of a second. The tongue is the strongest muscle in the body. And you can't hum while holding your nose, except my husband can, because we tried this out, but I don't think he was holding his nose properly. 
Okay, that was, that was fascinating. Lots of things there I didn't know. Um, this article is about one of my favourite people, Julie Waters, and it goes back to Patrick's original um, article about humour. This is called Comic Tonic, and it says, With a background in nursing, a life touched by the terrors of childhood illness and a warmth and wit that are shot in the arm... Julie Waters is perfectly placed to talk about a children's medical charity. As hospital bedside companions go, you'd be hard-pushed to think of a better one than Julie Waters. After all, in more than four decades of entertaining us on screen, stage and wherever else she pops up, Waters has proved herself to be a kind of medicine in human form, full of life, mischief, wisdom and natter. Ten minutes in her company and anyone would feel better. It doesn't come as much surprise then to learn that Walter's particular strength during her brief days as a student nurse was doing just that, cheering people up. She says, Oh, I loved being with a patient so much. I loved washing them, feeding them, telling them jokes, stealing their grapes, the whole lot. I was very good at making them laugh, but unfortunately terrified of everything else the job involved. And that's not ideal. In Birmingham in 1968, having been asked to leave school early due to persistent troublemaking, someone told me I was subversive, she said, and I distinctly remember having to look that up in the dictionary. <laughs> Walters then appeased her Irish mother by signing up for nursing training as an 18-year-old. The camaraderie at the nurse's home was splendid, but once on the ward, where she flitted between shifts in the casualty, coronary and ophthalmology departments, procedures petrified her, as did the thought of anyone having some sort of attack on her watch. Still, there was plenty of drama for a future actress to call on. She tells one particularly fine story of a patient with a frying pan handle lodged <laughs> in an intimate place. <laughs> he said she had an itch, she cackles. <laughs> and of course, the hospital did have a perfectly willing captive audience for her to practice on. Well, they were quite literally captive, really, weren't they? Stuck in those beds, forced to listen to me, she says. I'd wait until the senior nurse went off for a cup of tea and then do my bit of stand-up. I fell in love with a lot of the male patients too. The hospital had to actually ask me to stop writing so many letters to them after they'd left. Fun as that was, after 18 months, Walters dropped out to pursue acting in Manchester and didn't wear an NHS uniform again until she played a nurse in Alan Bennett's Intensive Care, part of the Play for Today series in 1982. It wasn't a vocation for me like it was for others there. I was much, much too immature to be responsible for people's lives and there were some in the nurse's home who had spent 50 years there. The idea filled me with terror. I saw in them as a desire and a commitment to help people tackling everything. I just wouldn't have coped. 
Now 66, Waters may have given up her nursing career long ago, but she still maintains a close connection to the profession as a patron of Roald Dahl's marvellous children's charity, devoted to supporting seriously ill young people, particularly those suffering from epilepsy, rare blood disorders and brain injuries. In addition to offering grants for cash-strapped families caring for a sick child, the organisation trains specialist paediatric nurses. There are 52 so far trying to meet the individual needs of more than 15,000 children at major hospitals across the UK. Walter's connection is a personal one. In 1990, her only child, Maisie, then little more than two years old, contracted an acute leukaemia, a cancer of the white blood cells. It was completely dreadful and such a shock, Walters says, looking back. People didn't really know a lot about it at the time and the treatment was just so long. Walters and her husband, Grant Roffey, a former AA patrolman, spent the next four years. Maisie relapsed after two, shuttling their daughter to and from the Royal Marsden Hospital in London, where Maisie had chemotherapy until she was finally given the all-clear shortly after her sixth birthday. During that period, it was the contribution of the nurses that Waters remembers most clearly. They were absolutely the most important thing, she says. It's a totally different job for a doctor from a doctor's. They cared in the fullest sense. For children, that meant reading stories, playing with them, reassurance, bathing, feeding. Maisie missed the hospital when she left. She thought it was fantastic there because of the nurses. In the same year that Maisie was diagnosed, the 74-year-old Roald Dahl died from myelodysplastic syndrome. Sorry, I'm not sure if I've pronounced that correctly. A rare form of leukaemia. His widow, and I think it's pronounced Licky or Lissy, L-I-C-C-Y, founded the charity in his memory and shortly afterwards met Waters over lunch at the Dahl family home in Buckinghamshire, where Roald's gypsy caravan and writing shed still stood. On hearing it would raise money for rare disorders such as mazes, Waters was instantly sold on becoming a patron. Illness is so scary, she says, and so many people suffer from little-known diseases that people don't particularly hear about, especially in deprived areas. They need proper support from these fabulous nurses, so let's get a few more trained, eh? Like most parents in the English-speaking world, Waters went on to raise her daughter on Roald Dahl's dark, magical stories. Fantastic Mr Fox is probably her favourite, she says, but mainly because it was the only tape in the car for eons brainwashing us. Maze is now a fit and healthy 28-year-old working in the charity sector, not far from her parents' organic farm in West Sussex. Waters and Roffey have lived there, surrounded by cows, turkeys and, flir- and a flirty old ram called Teddy for more than 20 years, far preferring the pace of life in the country to anything that London offers. That contrast is particularly stark in the run-up to this Christmas, 
as Walters will be filming the sequel to Paddington right up to the day itself, which will be a quiet celebration on the farm. Health writer Charlotte Hay McNeil says, All you need to build up your bone strength is to follow this four-step plan. Step one, jog for a minute. This could be all you need to build bone density, according to research. You don't like jogging? Well, any activity that involves a skipping moment, a skipping movement helps. So consider skipping or star jumps instead. Or a brisk daily walk with a 60-second burst of more intense activity is perfect. But always check with your doctor before starting any new exercise regime. Step 2. It's time to go Greek. Dairy products are the best source of calcium, crucial for preserving bone strength. Luckily, it's fairly easy to get enough. If you have a glass of milk, a matchbox-sized piece of cheese, and a small pot of yogurt each day, you'll easily hit the 700 milligram daily target. But make the yogurt a Greek one. It contains 225 milligrams of calcium per 150 milligram pot, slightly more than a standard yogurt, making it much easy, easier and a delicious way to notch up your intake of this must-have mineral. For an extra calcium hit, Top up your yogurt with flaked almonds. If you don't eat dairy, then speak to your doctor about whether or not you do need to be taking calcium supplements. Step 3. Eat your spuds. The humble potato is a rich source of potassium, and recent research has found this mineral can help slow down bone loss, reducing osteoporosis. The reason? Too much acid in the body's tissues can result in more bone being broken down. And potassium salts help neutralize excess acid, saving the bone. Try having a baked spud for lunch or mash with dinner. While the potato is one of the best sources, all fruit and veg contain potassium. So make sure you eat at least five portions a day. And step four, have lunch outdoors. You need vitamin D to absorb calcium properly. If you have enough calcium in your diet but you're low on vitamin D, your bones won't benefit. In the warmer months, spend around 20 minutes outside with no sunscreen in the middle of the day. An alfresco lunch is perfect. Top up with a supplement from October to March when the sun is too weak for your body to make vitamin D. Seesawing between high levels in the summer and low levels in the winter is actually bad for your bones, so make sure you have enough in the colder, darker months too. Well, as we all know, we should look after ourselves as much as we can and eat uh, kale because that's a superfood yeah anyway um talking about kale we all know that donald trump was in the news uh, recently <laughs> and uh seemingly some years ago when he was in ireland he's got a golf course uh, just about everywhere i think and uh, he was visiting ireland and he was driving through and he stopped uh because he saw a, a farmer in the field with an animal and he went over and he introduced himself and he said i'm donald trump and the future president of the United States, and the farm was quite duly impressed. And he said, oh, that's nice to know. And he says, yeah, he says, I'm just looking at that animal there that you're with. Uh, it's a fine-looking cow. He says, um, I know these kind of things because I'm uh, the future president of the United States of America. And the farmer says, well, that's an interesting observation. And Trump says, well, it's one thing that intrigues me about your cow, uh, Mr. Farmer. He says, uh, doesn't seem to have any horns at all, not even tiny horns. 
Is this extraordinary? Why hasn't that cow got horns? And the farmer said, well, Mr. Trump, the reason that that cow hasn't got any horns is because it's a horse. <laughs> and uh, that was one of Mr. Trump's uh, initial forays into <laughs> the communication. This is what I'm going to talk about now. It's vital, especially in the workplace. And remember years ago, I don't suppose they exist anymore, memos, um, because it's all electronic now and email and whatever the case may be and texting. But memos were a physical note that people would write. It's not too, it's not that far back, is it, that we're talking? You know, the memos went around in, in, within companies and it was a great form of, uh, of communication. But every uh, form of communication has built-in problems. So this is a series of communications that started out from the managing director and worked its way down through various uh, management uh, to the shop floor. And it starts off, memo from managing director to works director. Tomorrow morning, there will be a total eclipse of the sun at 9 o'clock. This is something which we cannot see happen every day, so let the workforce line up outside in the best clothes to watch it. To mark the occasion of this rare occurrence, I will personally explain it to them. If it is raining, we shall not be able to see it very well, and in that case, the workforce should assemble in the canteen. Memo from Works Director to General Works Manager. By order of the Managing Director, there will be a total eclipse of the sun at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. If it is raining, we shall not be able to see it very well on site in our best clothes. In that case, the disappearance of the sun will be followed through in the canteen. This is something that we cannot see happen every day. Memo from General Works Manager to Works Manager. By order of the Managing Director, we shall follow through in our best clothes the disappearance of the sun in the canteen at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. The Managing Director will tell us whether it is going to rain. This is something that we cannot see happen every day. Memo from works manager to foreman. If it is raining in the canteen tomorrow morning, which is something that we cannot see happen every day, our managing director in his best clothes will disappear at 9 o'clock. <laughs> Message from foreman to shop floor. Tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, our managing director will disappear. It's a pity that we cannot see this happen every day. This is an article I have a coat on, so am I now old? I like to think that I'm still young. I've just Googled what is young, and I can definitely tell you that it is having lived or existed for only a short time. Seeing as how the Earth is over 4.5 billion years old, in comparison, we are all therefore young whippersnappers. But there are times when I have to give in and admit I am not as fresh-faced as I once was like on Saturday. Heading back to my car in the rain after two friends joined 40th birthday parties, seeing women in skirts and crop tops and men in t-shirts all without coats. No thanks, I prefer my sensible coat, jeans and warm boots. A few minutes in the rain sans jacket would lead to a cold I have no chance of shifting for the next month. My last car had no working radio, and now my new one does. I instinctively turn to Radio 1, then spend the whole journey wondering what on earth this rubbish is that I'm listening to. I mean, honestly. It's all noises and uh, repetition uh, words, and I have to stop myself because it just echoes what my parents used to say back when they had to taxi me around. Dank. Savage. Triggered. Lit. These words confuse me rather than make up part of my everyday vocabulary. Bottle flipping has me worrying for the neighbours 
with a constant banging, and I would rather punch myself in the face than attempt to be a YouTube vlogger or Instagram famous. But perhaps the thing that has alerted me to the fact that I am no spring chicken anymore is when I sat on the floor playing with my daughter and it took me a good few minutes to be able to stand back up again. Let's just say something clicked. <laughs> I think we probably all know that feeling. Um, this article is called The Best of British. Meet the woman who swapped a high-flying career for the joy of tutus. The headquarters of the biggest seller of tutus in Europe is in a former farm building on an unsignpost lane in Kent. Inside are piles of boxes filled with ruffles, frills, feathers, shrugs and hundreds of tutus. It looks, says the owner, Keely Daininger, as though a chiffon bomb has exploded. I call it happiness in a box, she says. If my clothes don't make a little girl gasp, then I'm not doing my job properly. This year, her children's clothing business, Angel's Face, has a projected turnover of £2 million and has sold roughly 150,000 items of clothing, including 30,000 tutus. The oldest person to buy one was 74, she says, and she told me she was going to do the hoovering in it. She is 50 and was previously a design director at Velmore, one of Marks and Spencer's main fashion suppliers, but found it hard to scale back her workaholic tendencies. The turning point came on 9-11 when she was in Seoul for business. She watched the horror unfold on television and heard a report that Canary Wharf where her husband Tom worked, was being evacuated. I thought, I've got a three-year-old baby and a ten-week-old baby, and I'm on the other side of the world. This isn't right. Soon after she quit her job, and from her kitchen table set up her boys' clothing line called Little Linens, and later Angel's Face. Today, Keeley has 16 employees but still designs every tutu herself. First, she draws, she comes up with an idea, drawing inspiration from the Victoria and Albert Museum, vintage fairs, flower markets, and ballets. She then sketches the outline for a tutu and stitches the applique in the way she was taught as a girl by her grandmother Grace before sending it to be made up. She used to stitch samples herself. The average person takes three hours to make a tutu, but I can do one in 40 minutes. However, the tutus are now made in China. She says she feels as excited to receive a parcel of samples today as she did in the early days of the business. Another quality that hasn't changed is her work ethic. Last night I was still designing till 2am. It's an intense vocation. You're either a worker bee or you're not. The next article is called Flashback and in it Hayley Turner remembers being the first female jockey to win a race for the Queen in 2010. There's a photograph on the, on the page and it's a photograph taken on a bright blue spring day at Newbury Racecourse 
The jockey, the female jockey, Hayley Turner, is standing next to a beautiful ch chestnut racehorse. She's wearing jockey silks, brightly coloured, and is smiling widely at the camera. On the other side of the horse is the groom, and standing next to the groom is Her Majesty the Queen. She's dressed in a sage green coat with a matching hat. It's only six years since this photograph was taken, but for me it feels like a different era. I've ridden for the Queen quite a few times since, and I've met her on a number of occasions, but this was the first time. It was April 17, 2010, at Maiden Stakes at Newbury Racecourse. Each year Her Majesty attends the race, and that year the horse's trainer, Michael Bell, decided to let me ride the Queen's horse. I was so excited. That morning I called my Nana saying, you have to watch this race on telly, Nana. I'm riding for the Queen. I wanted everything to go just right. I wasn't worried about the race itself. It's important not to let the pressure get to you, as the horse will feel it and won't perform as well. I was confident in myself, and I was confident in my horse. It was meeting the Queen that I was worried about. I remember waiting in the weighing room while Her Majesty was in the paddock. I started to panic. Was it the left leg behind the right leg, or was it the other way around? Should I call her ma'am, or should I call her mom? I stepped into the paddock and felt the pressure build when I saw that everyone was watching. But as soon as we were introduced, I relaxed entirely. Her Majesty is very easy to talk to when you can discuss horses. You can see she was genuinely interested in what you have to say about the horse's character. I think she was happy for me to ride Tactician because she knew I had ridden him before. The Queen breeds all her own horses, so she would have known him as a foal before giving him to Michael Bell to train. She distributes her horses to different trainers throughout the country, so it's such a thrill for her to see them ride, especially when they win. And that day, we won. It was a flat race, a mile and three furlongs, and I remember the horse was quite difficult. He was very full of himself that day. And this photo was taken just before the race. I'm wearing the Queen's colours and one of the groom is holding the horse. I remember he did well to try and keep Tactician calm. I was the first female jockey to ride a winner for Her Majesty and it was also Tactician's maiden win, so it was an afternoon of firsts. From that day on, the Queen had confidence in me. To date, I've ridden seven or eight winners for the Queen and I've even joked with her that she should be paying me a retainer. It's an absolute mm. honour to ride for her that day and it, was some, and it is something that no one can ever take away. One of the great things about being a jockey is meeting interesting people and Her Majesty is undoubtedly at the top of that list. Uh, we have um, a dog by the name of Solo and he originally was intended to be a guide dog but he isn't now. Uh, and the reason for that is we uh, puppy walked uh, uh, Solo for about 14 months and then he left us to go to Leamington Spa which is the main um, finishing college if you like because they do wonderful work there, they're, they're professional trainers. Um, the reason that we people like us have uh, these puppies from six weeks old to 14 months is that we train them on a day-to-day -day basis on how to behave properly, really. That's the, that's the best thing. That's why guide dogs, when they go anywhere, they're always reliably well-behaved and welcomed and so on. Um, and also, that time, uh, by the time they're about 14 months old, um, the chosen breeds, they're a very small uh, uh, group of breeds. There's a ret uh, golden retrievers, 
uh, Labradors, um, a, a couple still uh, uh, of German Shepherds are still done, um, and uh, uh, occasional other varieties, crossbreeds, but mainly the preferred breed is the um, cross, uh, Labrador and Retriever. Those two, uh, um, whatever attributes both those dogs have, when they combine, they make an ideal uh, guide dog. Um, our dog, Solo, is a, a, a purebred golden retriever and a very smart dog and was learning very, very well uh, and during his training. And then we began to notice he had a foible, you might call it, uh, to small noises. He didn't object to big noises, road dr- diggers and things like that, getting on and off trains, which was uh, all part of their training. Um, didn't object to that at all. But he did object to a CD being ejected from a CD player, for example. That mm-hmm. filled him with alarm. And his biggest uh, problem was, as he's walking along for his daily walk, he... Um, Incidentally, all guide dogs are trained to walk on the le- on the left hand. The lead is held in the left hand. The reason for that is 90% of the population is right-handed. So uh, the eventual uh, um, uh, owner uh, will walk with the with the left hand in the lead, and their good hand, their most used dominant hand, right hand is free. On the 10%, that is the opposite. Then the dog is at the last minute given special training to adjust to. Uh, um, right hand led walking that's all part of the in really great uh, well thought out training that uh, guide dogs do but as you're walking along if he heard a rustle of um, uh, leaves on the footpath if, uh, breeze suddenly get and, and move some leaves he would react as if a hand grenade had been thrown at him he would rear up get out of control, I'm using all my strength. He's still a puppy, don't forget, and I'm still using all my strength to keep him under control. And I reported, of course, all this to the um, supervisors that we had a monthly visit from the supervisor on the next stage of the training that we're doing. And they duly took note. And I was hoping that um, the um, the professional trainers at uh, Leamington Spa could uh, do something about it, but they couldn't. He was hardwired for this. So eventually... Having uh, gone in there for about three months, I think they spent on him, and I got a phone call saying because of the, the realisation that they couldn't change this uh, behaviour that was built into him, they were taking him out of training, which is their way of saying he's failed. They didn't say failed in case he was listening. You see, it was very nice, isn't it? Yeah. And um, and the next thing they said, because you know the dog and its foibles, is we, we have a... A waiting list uh, for people who want uh, dog, dogs who don't make it through the training and dogs who are retired because they're wonderful house pets and so on and wonderful around children um, and they get first choice but uh, in this case it's an exception because we don't want to hand the dog over to somebody who doesn't know the dog and its foibles but you do would you be willing to rehome him so I was willing and uh, we have this wonderful dog with us now and um he still does some work. He goes uh, once a week to uh, Acorns Children's Hospice. He'll be there tomorrow, uh, in fact, uh, where he's a superstar there, not just to the children, but also to the staff, because the staff have a tough job there. They're meeting very, very ill children, very damaged children all the time. And for Solo to walk in, and he brightens the place up, and they all the office is vacated. They're all down to see him and t- 
stroking him and me, and I have to say, get away, he's not here for you, he's for the kids, <laughs> and so whatever the case may be. But he likes, he, he does everybody uh, a great favour. And the uh, other part of his job is he goes to a PRU, Pupil Referral Unit, uh, where he has a very calming effect on children who are difficult to manage, and he works his magic there. So he's quite, quite a... He's paying his dues to society, shall we say. Um, but I just thought I'd give you some uh, information about, about dogs um, uh, in particular, uh, generally, uh, and then uh, specifically about guide dogs. Um, all dogs, as we know, are very natural, naturally exuberant animals. And one way they, sh they show their joy at greeting someone is to jump up at them and greeting and touch them and the whales uh, wagging. And that's not a problem when they're just a lightweight puppy, but a full-grown guide dog, for example, is quite strong and heavy and could easily knock a person over, especially a child or a frail person. And that's why guide dog puppies are trained never to jump up to greet anyone. They're also trained to sit on command, lie down on command, and so on. So how are they trained not to jump up? Well, it's called repetition technique. This means that everyone in the household repeats the same reaction in order to avoid confusing the puppy by giving different reactions. So in this case, everyone reacts the same way every time the jumping occurs. That's essential. The repetition technique in itself is quite simple. When the puppy jumps up, the person says, no whilst at the same time turning their back on the puppy. Now, at first, the puppy is perplexed. It doesn't want to say hello to your back, for goodness sake. It doesn't say to your front. No. But after this technique is adhered to for one hundred and first time, the puppy begins to understand. If he wants to say hello to your front, he has learned to wag his tail furiously, and he receives a pat on the head. A guide dog never jumps up. And the other one that uh, making a dog sit, a guide dog sit promptly, and that doesn't refer to guide dogs, but it's part of their training, uh, sit on command. By using a treat, it can be um, uh, a biscuit or a toy, whatever the case may be. So you uh, get the puppy's attention, hold the treat in your hand and lift it up and back over their head. So their eyes will follow the direction of the treat, making them look upwards. And as their head goes up higher and higher, the bottom, to compensate, will lower and lower. So when you give the sit command at the same time, gently leaning on their back end, their bottom touches the floor. Give the treat, praise your dog. And then when you do that for the 101st time, they begin to get it. Then there's a down command. From the sit position, have a treat in your hand and show it to the puppy. Slowly move your hand down towards the floor between their feet. Their eyes will follow your hand down, and if you keep going down, they will eventually lay down. As they lay down, give the down command. Then they, it starts embedding in their, in their memory. Keep in mind that once the puppy realizes that down means to lay down, you mustn't confuse them by using the same word for something else, such as getting off the sofa. You would need to use a new word in that situation. So you give the treat, and you praise the puppy. As with the sit command, over a period of time, remove the treat as your dog starts to understand the commands. And I'm just going to ask a group of intellectuals here around the table, how many times would you have to repeat this before they get it? Hundreds. Hundred? Hundred and one. One hundred and one. Yes, very good. <laughs> That's it. 
This is a story of, from Flashback, and it's a TV presenter of Kate Humble who remembers walking in the Namibian desert in 1994. When I was 19, I got on a plane and went to Africa on my own with no plans. I had 800 whole pounds in a rucksack. I'd saved and saved and saved. It was one of the greatest life lessons I could have had. I didn't go to university, so this was my higher education, I suppose. I said to my parents, I might be home in five years. They were amazingly supportive. I came home a year later. We didn't have internet or mobile phones, just rough guides. When you're 19, you think you can do anything. I was terrified of flying, and I'd taken loads of beta blockers, and I was off my face for the entire journey. I got to Johannesburg and stayed initially with the family of a girl that I'd done a typing course with. That was the start of my South African adventure. I marched against apartheid on the streets of Cape Town with white South Africans, which surprised me. To my simplistic teenage mind, everyone who was black in Africa hated everyone who was white and vice versa. Of course, it was not so much, it was much more complex. It was a really exciting time to be there. There was a real feeling of a need for upheaval. For some people, it was terrifying. For others, it couldn't come soon enough. It was an incredibly energetic period. That trip made me fall in love with Africa. And when Mandela was released from prison several years later, I felt that I had played a little role in this. So when the election happened in '94, I said to my husband, Ludo, we had to go to South Africa. Sorry, we have to go to South Africa. We'd been married for two years. We were mortgaged up to our eyebrows. He thought I was mad, but I said, I've just got to go, and I've got to go now. We applied for a work permit, which was turned down the day we left. So we decided to, take, to just make the most of it until our money ran out. We bought what was called a Backy, a Ford Cortina pickup truck, and drove from Cape Town to Namibia. We're in a place called, now I need help on this, Suzufle? Yes, Fle? Suzufle. Suzufle. Big dunes on the west side of Namibia. We had to take turns to drive and, or sit in the passenger seat or lie in the back getting absolutely covered in dust. All the roads in, Namib in Namibia were then dirt roads. It's an ironic, extraordinary landscape, this white, dried-out salt pan. It's beautiful. We were there by ourselves, and I've never been back because I know how popular it is now, and to have had it all to ourselves feels like one of those moments in life that's unrepeatable. Well, the last article I read was about a, start, a start-up business selling um, and designing tutus, and this one is about um, a business selling oysters and it's called Best of British and it's about meeting the team who were breathing life back into a forgotten oyster factory. Sorry, fishery. As oyster farmers go, Roger Hall is unusual. For a start, he's allergic to shellfish. And he spent 31 years in the corporate world, most recently as a project manager at BT. Yet earlier this year, Hall, now 68, set himself the task of reviving an abandoned oyster fishery in his hometown of Poorlock, Somerset. 
In the mid-1800s, oyster fishing here was quite, was quite good business, he says. One of six unpaid directors at Porlock Bay Oysters. But in the 1880s, boats from Colchester and Whitstable sailed to Porlock and dredged up the oyster bed, destroying them. Residents of the pretty village in the Exmoor National Park, which inspired Coleridge and Wordsworth, donated £107,000 to the oyster farm and efforts to reopen it began in March. The directors bought seedlings from Morecambe Bay, choosing Pacific oysters that grow year-round. They can take up to three years to reach maturity, so seedlings of various ages were chosen to stagger the harvests. The oysters are grown in fine mesh sacks that allow seawater to flow through, but prevent the seedlings, which are the size of your fingernail, explains Hall, from falling out. The sacks are strapped to steel trestle tables attached to the seabed with stakes. Twice a month, when low tide exposed the tables, Hall and his team split sacks of 10,000 oysters into smaller bags of 250, allowing their residents room to grow. On occasion, they defrill the oyster. An oyster's lower shell grows faster than its curved top, and consumes energy, explains Hall. Defrilling cracks off the excess lip and refocuses the efforts into growing meat. For harvesting, the bags are pushed in a wheelbarrow across the sand to a packaging plant. A tractor would damage the beach, explains Hall. The oysters are then sent through salty water and ultraviolet light to kill bacteria then driven to the local restaurants, ready to be shucked. The first harvest took place in May, and all 3,000 oysters sold in three weeks. They had a strong salty flavour because they're grown in the open sea, says Hall. When I retired, I certainly didn't expect to be developing the oyster business. It's part of the patchwork quilt that makes living in Britain so pleasant. Last summer, the National Trust launched a hunt to find a farmer to look after a one million park farm on the Great Orme in North Wales for just one pound a year. Hundreds of applicants applied. The successful farmer has just collected his keys and now it's time for the real work to begin. So let's read further and find out what writer Sally Palmer discovers when she goes to visit this successful farmer. It's beautiful and bleak up here on the Great Orm, and the views are simply staggering. A few stunted trees stream dramatically away from the prevailing wind, and my eyes are watering within moments of stepping out of my car. The wilderness comes as a surprise. The headland is barely five minutes' climb by road or tram from the seaside town of Landadno, but it really feels like another world. For the man that I've come here to meet, this windswept corner of North Wales is, as of today, home. And shepherd Dan Jones can't wait to get to work. It's been a bit of a whirlwind, he says, as we walk together across the limestone grassland towards the rundown barns and the sheep pens huddled in a, shen- a sheltered hollow. Dan's journey began last summer when the National Trust issued a tempting offer. The chance to become a tenant of the £1 million park farm 
for just one pound a year and farm its fragile, precious landscape sympathetically in a way that works for both people and nature. The story hit the headlines and the calls poured in. At times, the switchboard was fielding 100 calls an hour from would-be applicants as far afield as Italy, New Zealand and America. The opportunity itself is far more than a mere media moment. The trust bought Park Farm and its 59 hectares of limestone grassland and rare heath in 2015, using funds from our Neptune Coastal Appeal. With the farm, we acquired a further 291 hectares of grazing rights on the Orme. The purchase followed the publications of the Trust's 10-year strategy, playing our part, in which we pledged to help reverse the alarming decline in wildlife. 60% of native British species in the past 50 years have disappeared and we need to find a solution to nurse the countryside back to health. The Great Orm is home to many internationally rare habitats and species, some of which exist nowhere else on earth, explains Rural Enterprise Director Patrick Begg. It's an incredibly sensitive nature conservation area and it's also a farming landscape. We are committed to farming it, but we're aiming for a lighter touch on the land than we've done in the past. We've got the chance to establish a farming method that will rebuild the wonderful herb-rich pastures and meadows. A farm like this is a needs a special tenant. The Trust decided to offer up the £1 million farm for just a pound a year for the first 10 years. Easing the financial pressure in these early days should buy the successful candidate time to make the necessary changes and switch to a much less intensive way of farming while still making the land profitable. During the summer, the shortlisted candidates visit Park Farm and underwent a gruelling interview process. Dan Jones, a 38-year-old shepherd from nearby Anglesey, emerged the clear winner. The Trust knew what they were looking for. They were looking for someone who understood the specific demands of this habitat. <clears throat> Dan has grazing rights for 400 sheep plus followers, lambs. So far he has around 300. They are a local breed called lean, which were chosen for their hardiness and bought for the park farm by the wild plant conservation charity called Plant Life. Dan also wants to establish a smaller flock of Herdwick sheep to upland the breed, favored, the upland breed favored, favored by Beatrix, Beatrix Potter in the lakes. The local lean will be suited to the harsh environment here and they should thrive and produce really good quality lamb. I leave Dan in his half-packed farmhouse after a cup of tea and a slice of the best barabrith I've ever tasted. A ewe is peering through the window, and as I drive away, Dan and Nell are back outside, rounding, round, rounding her up to put her, rounding her up to put up with her friends. Shepherding here is a demanding twenty-four hour a day job, but Dan thinks he's the luckiest man alive. Looking at his view with the sun setting over the headland, it's hard to disagree. Um, just before I read this. Uh piece here I must uh, tell you about something that just come to mind where a, um, a woman who uh, was getting on I think in years and she had a uh, complete um, upper and lower uh, set of dentures made and uh, shortly afterwards she went back to the dentist uh, complaining that uh, uh, the teeth didn't fit and he said well uh, just bite on this uh, paper and uh, 
may have a look. He says, okay. So he got his drill out. Zzz, he's doing a little zzz. He said, try that out. And she's back uh, later in the week. And she said, the teeth still don't fit. So here we go again. Try it out. And this went on for a week after week after week after week. And she's back again. The teeth don't fit. And he said, ah, right, let me have a little look. By now he's just almost down to just to the pink bits. And it's already on the left. And he says, he said, I'll be honest with you, ma'am. He says, I can't understand why these teeth don't fit in your mouth. And she says, not my mouth. The teeth don't fit in the glass. <laughs> and uh, so I just thought it because it's all about water. So it seemed to be a natural sort of uh, um, connection here. So this is the piece I'm re- reading here. Back in 1857, Joseph Gayetti invented the first commercial loop paper. While his name will forever be remembered for his contribution to the lavatory, Mr. Gaetti has a lot to answer for. Toilet paper now costs the globe more than 27,000 trees a day, with the average roll containing around 333 tissues. Trees across, across the globe are being wiped out thanks to this daily habit. Making a single roll of toilet paper uses 1.3 kilowatts of electricity, more than 35 gallons of water, and 1.5 pounds of wood. The average household consumes around 100 rolls every year, which can tot up to spending more than 50 pounds a year just on toilet rolls. Not to mention the fact that using tissue can result in irritation, pain, and potentially long-term damage. While there are around 7.4 billion people in the world, more than half, that's 4 billion, don't use toilet paper. In a world where more is, well, more, isn't it time to assess whether our obsession with paper sanitary products is worth killing the planet for? For centuries, billions of people across the globe, from India to Indonesia, have eschewed the need for toilet paper, preferring to use water for a wholesome cleanse that lasts. Water is the purest cleanser on the planet. Kind to skin, readily available, gentle and thorough, there's an argument to be made that cleansing with water is ultimately far more hygienic than using tissue to do the same job. It's also more economical and environmentally friendly. Even if you are convinced by the ecological argument, installing a bidet can take up useful bathroom space and it can be costly. The Geberet Aqua Clean Mera Shower Toilet is the ideal solution as it ensures a thorough clean while taking up minimal floor space and removes the need for a separate bidet in the bathroom. The Aqua Clean Mera has a pulsating shower spray as well as a warm air dryer for an all in one experience. If you want to enjoy a true feeling of freshness, ditch the toilet tissue and instead opt for H2O to give you a cleanse that billions of people enjoy every day without costing the earth. And we've only just got time for the answers of your quiz. So what item of clothing was named after its Scottish inventor? A Macintosh. Who invented the rabies vaccination? Louis Pasteur. Where would you find the Sea of Tranquility? On the moon. Name the world's biggest ice island, Greenland. What is the world's longest river? The Amazon. Which four British cities have underground rail systems? 
Liverpool, Glasgow, Newcastle and London. What's the diameter of the Earth? It's 8,000 miles. Which actress has won the most Oscars? It was Catherine Hepburn with four Oscars and 12 nominations. Name the actress whose career began at the age of three and who went on to star in films such as Contact, Maverick and The Silence of the Lambs was Jodie Foster. In which film did Humphrey Bogart say, we're always, uh, sorry, we'll always have Paris, was Casablanca. By what name is Lancelot Brown more usually known? Capability Brown. Which popular gardener created Barnsdale Gardens? And uh, the other bits was Jeff Hamilton. Which kind of bulbs were once exchanged as a form of currency? Was tulips. How many times was the men's tennis singles at Wimbledon won by Beyond Borg? Was five. Which was the famous ballet Russian dancer who changed the face of modern ballet? Was Rudolf Nureyev. Named the Spanish artist, sculptor and draftsman famous for co-founding the Cubist movement was Pablo Picasso. When did the Eurostar train service between Britain and France start running? It was the 14th of November 1994. When was the euro introduced as legal currency on the world's market? It was the 1st of January 1999. Named the author of On Her Majesty's Secret Service, Dr. No and Thunderball, among others, was Ian Fleming. Which Shakespeare play, play features Shylock was The Merchant of Venice? Which BBC music programme was broadcast weekly between 1964 and 2006 was Top of the Pops. What is sushi traditionally wrapped in? Edible seaweed. So that was the quiz, and I know it was very hard, um, but maybe next time we'll do a slightly easier one. That brings us to the end of our month's magazine. We hope you've enjoyed listening as much as we've enjoyed reading from Sue Tarot. Patrick. And myself, Jenny.